you have your Bibles, turn to Malachi. Malachi, chapter 1, the last book of the Old Testament right before Matthew. Malachi. When you think of the word sovereignty or the sovereignty of God, what comes to mind? What's on your mind when you think of that phrase, the sovereignty of God? A few authors describe it this way. Doug Wilson says, God is not an actor within the larger scheme of things. He is not a muscle-bound Jupiter bullying the littler ones. He is the author of the whole thing. We never ask how much of Hamlet's role was contributed by Hamlet and how much by Shakespeare. That is not a question that can be answered with 70-30 or 50-50 or 90-10. The right answer is 100 out of 100. Hamlet's actions are all Hamlet's, and they are all Shakespeare's. Vernon McGee says this, This is God's universe, and God does things his way. You may have a better way, but you don't have a universe. And then Thomas Brooks says this, The sovereignty of God is that golden scepter in his hand by which he will make all bow, either by his word or by his works, by his mercies or by his judgments. You see, the sovereignty of God is a truth taught all throughout Scripture, but ignored by the majority of Christianity today. Malachi is a prophet that is sent by God specifically to deliver a message to the people of Judah. In fact, Malachi means messenger. God's word is the focus, church, not the messenger. And that should always be the focus when we speak on his behalf. The goal is always to point to him and his word, not to us. In fact, we have a reminder in the New Testament, right? Let your light shine so forth before men that they may see your good works and do what? Glorify you? No, glorify your Father who is in heaven. Everything that is done should glorify God, including those things that we speak on his behalf. Unfortunately, in today's culture, it's more about the messenger than the message. And because that's the case, when the messenger fails in any way, the message is now distorted or dismissed outright. Many have built celebrity status in proclamation of God's word, and if one were to hear the message that Malachi is to preach, many churches wouldn't want him coming into their pulpits to preach this message. Because they'd want a sermon about them, not about God and who he is and his worthiness. Believers don't get caught up in the messenger because the messenger can and will have his flaws just as Malachi does. Realize that even if the delivery is off or you don't like the message, the source of the message is God. Even sometimes though his messengers misinterpret or misunderstand what he's trying to communicate. Malachi gets out of the way here in this text and literally lets God speak, as we ought to as well. We want to speak on his behalf. Malachi is writing to the people of Judah who came back to Jerusalem from captivity to Babylon and expected God to bless them as he did in times past. You see, God moved the nation of Israel out into judgment and they returned and expected everything to be restored as it once was. But unfortunately, as we know, even in our own lives, you can't always get back what you have. 
It's just true for all of us in different areas. Unfortunately, they didn't see how it was really God loving them because that's what they question is his love right in the beginning. Because times were still very hard for them. As with us, we expect the good to be defined by us and not by God, right? We know the verse, you know, everybody knows it, quotes it in the church all the time. We know that all things work for good, right? The question is, whose good are we talking about? Is it the good that we would like to define or the good that God defines? It's important to know whose definition we're going by. God's message to them is a very serious one in that he tells them directly what he thinks of them. The good, the bad, and the ugly. This is a heavy message, which is why it begins with the phrase, the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel. This is a very serious message. You see, one of the greatest problems in the church today is with the Bible that we have in our possession, we simply avoid reading or even addressing certain sections because it bothers us. We don't want to hear it. It makes us uncomfortable that God would say what he says in certain texts and flat out call us out for our depravity. You see, our argument is just like Israel's. How do you love me, God? I don't feel the love right now. This doesn't feel loving what I'm going through. And God responds to us just as he does with Israel. Look at what he starts with. Verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. Before God even deals with anything else, he establishes the fact that he loves them and that he has loved them. Before you and I can take care of the present in our lives, we need to be reminded of the past and how God has loved us. You see, the truth is this. One of the most important truths God could ever establish before he brings up the heavy stuff is that he loved them. We all as children need that reminder, don't we? Parents, if you ever have children and you're trying to work on something in their life, need, they need some discipline, isn't one of the most important things to communicate to them is that you love them? Isn't that the, one of the most important truths to communicate? Son, daughter, I know you're, you're not getting this right. We're trying to work on this in your life. I want you to know we love you. That's why we're addressing this. Our Heavenly Father does the same with us. He reminds us of his love. When you are in doubt, and I am in doubt, just like Israel is here, that God has loved us and will continue to love us, he reminds us in his word, in Romans chapter 1, that we are his beloved. Romans 1 verse 7, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Believer, just as the nation of Israel need to be reminded of God's love for them, you and I need to be reminded of God's love for us. The beauty of the gospel is that we do not deserve the love of God. But we are given it by the sovereign hand of God. God does not owe us anything. He does not need to explain to us. He is sovereign over all 
of creation. So many want to argue whether or not God is absolutely sovereign. And it bothers them that God would declare himself this way. But in Romans 9, which I recommend reading the whole chapter, we're not going to do that this morning, another messenger of God, Paul, presents the argument anticipating this may be a difficult thing to wrestle with for all of us. Romans 9, we're going to read verses 14 through 26. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then, it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay? From the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he may make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. And he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people. And her beloved, who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it is said to them, You are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Believer, if there's one truth that we need to drink deeply, it is the absolute sovereignty of God. It is a truth that is so often ignored by those that claim to believe it. You were the beloved of God because God determined that before you were ever born. You can wrestle with that truth and get upset when it comes to clash with your worldview because you've been told you control your own destiny. But the truth is, God is absolutely sovereign. God has every right to do what he wishes. And though many Christians would argue that God somehow replaced the Jewish people with believers in Jesus today, that is simply not the case. In Romans eleven twenty five through 29, Paul says this, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the Deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them, when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. 
God made certain promises to Israel he will always be sure to keep. God has his own remnant. He has his own people even outside of that nation that he promises certain things to. What most believers miss is that God hardened the nation of Israel so that Gentiles like you and me could come in. Lest you think that's God being unfair, he has every right. And I'm actually glad he did it. Because I get to benefit from real mercy. You and I get to benefit from mercy. We don't get to point our finger at God and go, it's all me. Thank you, I'm special. It's undeserved grace. God has a certain amount of people that will be saved, and that is exactly how it's spelled out in this text. Where we find out that though we have been given salvation in Christ, God is not done with Israel, and they will once again be restored. God has not cast away his people. He will restore them. Stephen Armstrong argues in his commentary regarding these verses... This is yet another clear statement of God's sovereignty and salvation and his appointment of a certain number of believing people. In a way, we could say that just as God had a certain number of Jews in mind for his remnant, 7,000 in Elijah's day, similarly, God has a certain number of Gentiles in mind for salvation across this age. And like the Jewish remnant was a small number relative to the overall number of Jewish people. Similarly, the Gentiles who receive mercy will be a small number compared to the overall number of Gentiles who walk the earth. Now you may be wondering, is this really what the Bible teaches? Can God really be this absolutely sovereign? Well, in 1 Peter 2, 7 and 8, I want you to hear what this text says. We're going to read it out of the English Standard Version. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word. The verse doesn't stop there. As they were destined to do. You want to talk about humbling, earth-shattering stuff in the Bible. What do you mean God is absolutely sovereign? Don't we have choice? Don't we have free will? Even those that argue for the free will of man will have to readily admit that even if that were the case, God's sovereignty reigns over how long a person has on this earth. Or even when Jesus comes back to this earth. That's up to him to decide, not you and me. Which is why date setting on our end is simply speculation. You have to be reminded his ways are not yours. His thoughts are not your thoughts. So we've looked more in depth into the word beloved. Let's get back to the text here in Malachi. And break down how God expands on his statement that he loves them. Malachi chapter 1, beginning again at verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. 
I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Even though Edom has said, we have been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness, and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. Your eyes will, shall see, and you shall say, the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. You see, Israel as a nation asks God for his proof of love. And he gives them specific responses. He begins by telling them that he loved the descendants of Jacob over Esau. Esau, by the way, did receive a small blessing, but it paled in comparison to Jacob's. I want us to compare these two blessings because I think it plays a, an important part in this text and to see for ourselves that we are quite similar to Israel in the way that we don't feel loved when God has blessed us infinitely more than the ungodly around us. Let's start with Esau's blessing. If you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis 27. Let's start with Esau's blessing after Jacob stole it through deceit. By the way, that's the whole point of divine election. Very much not deserved. Jacob did not deserve this blessing. He was deceitful. Here's Esau's blessing, by the way. Genesis 27, verses 38 through 40. And Esau said to his father, Have you only one blessing, my father? Bless me, me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Jacob, his father, or Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, your dwelling shall be of the fatness of the earth and of the dew of heaven from above. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. And it shall come to pass when you become restless that you shall break his yoke from your neck. Now I want you to look at Esau's blessing and compare it now to Jacob's blessing. Here's Jacob's blessing. Mind you, not rightfully his. It was all God's grace. God's being merciful here. Genesis 27, let's read 21 through 29. Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near that I may feel you, my son, whether you are really my son Esau or not. First of all, if you're going to get a blessing from God, starting in deception is probably not the right way to do it. This is how grace works. Truly undeserved. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, and he felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. Then he said, Are you really my son Esau? He said, I am. He said, Bring it near to me. And I will eat of my son's game, so that my soul may bless you. So he brought it near to him, and he ate. And he brought him wine, and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near now and kiss me, my son. 
And he came near and kissed him, and he smelled the smell of his clothing and blessed him and said, Surely the smell of my son is like the smell of the field which the Lord has blessed. Therefore may God give you of the dew of heaven, of the fatness of the earth, and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you, and nations bow down to you. Be master over your brethren, and let your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be those who bless you. I want us to take a closer look at some of the differences between the two blessings for these brothers. Because these blessings played out in the generations that followed. Esau's in verse 39. Notice what it says. Behold, your dwelling shall be of the fatness of the earth and of the dew of heaven from above. Compare that to verse 28 for Jacob. Therefore, may God give you of the dew of the heaven, of the fatness of the earth, and plenty of grain and wine. Both mention the dew of heaven, don't they? Fatness of the earth. What's the difference? What's the difference? May God. One has a divine blessing attached. Esau's has no divine blessing attached, as Jacob's does. May God give you, is specifically what Jacob's says. The order is also reversed with the fatness of the earth and the dew of heaven. Let's unpack this for a moment. Though there is divine, common grace to all... Jacob was given a specific divine blessing from God, particular to him and his descendants. Common grace is given to all of mankind. The opportunity to live every single day is given to every man. In fact, as one one person put it, God gives the breath to the very person that hates him. That's common grace. This is to be a reminder that even in his deceit, God chose to bless Jacob. Jacob didn't have a good qualifier for being blessed. He stole what wasn't rightfully his. But God chose to bless him, and it all worked out as a part of God's plan. Everything that Jacob owned... All the ways he prospered were to be a reminder that it was God that gave it to him. Is that our perspective? I mean, ask yourself, believer, you know you're a child of God. Do I really believe that myself? That everything in my life that God has prospered, my family, my friends, my relationships, the things that I possess, do I truly believe that I received this from his divine hand. And I don't mean just saying that. I'm talking, you really believe it in your heart. That this was all divine grace in my life. Do we understand how much of a privilege it is to be called the beloved? The sons of God because of our union with Christ. 
Believer, Jesus came to give us eternal life, but he also came to give us a life that's more abundant here. And unfortunately, so many of us ignore that. Miserable Christians are living antithetical to what God would want. And I don't mean that in a success, everything prosperous type of way either. What I'm saying is there are divine truths that we need to drink deeply even when we are suffering. And in God's eyes, that's success. When you and I partake deeply of the truths that God teaches us on this earth. When you feel like you aren't being loved by God, you don't know why this keeps happening, you've tried everything you can and it doesn't go the way you want. I want you to be reminded of what Jesus gave up for you. He gave up of all of glory, all the splendor, everything you could ever want as king humbled himself, became obedient to the Father's will, suffered on your behalf. Believer, just as to Jacob and the nation of Israel, this promise was given, may these verses be a reminder to stop thinking so highly of yourself that you've accomplished so much in this life. Deuteronomy 8, 17 through 18 says this, Then you shall say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth. And you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant which you swore to your fathers, as it is this day. One of the worst things a believer can do is take credit for what God has given him. So many disciples of Jesus think they are the ones that are most important when it's all due to the merciful, sovereign hand of God. If we only stop to bow before him in complete surrender our God and our King. The order matters in our lives as well. We can live for the here and now, the fatness of the land as we see with Esau, or we can realize the blessings of God due to the ways that he's provided for us. The only way you can connect the blessings of God to him is when you are constantly aware of his divine hand over everything in your life. Here's the problem for most of us. We like to see God's hand in certain areas in our life and other areas we think we play the biggest role. Unfortunately, many Christians blame God for all the hard things they're going through in life and want to take credit for the good things that go well. When we choose to live carnal and worldly lives, we lose the divine perspective that should be our motivation. The motivation for you and I to live should be the glory of God. Any of us that know anything about the Westminster Catechism, we know, confession of faith, that it's about him. And we claim that. But do we live it? Do we believe it? We've been created for his glory and to enjoy him forever. Why aren't we enjoying him here now? 
because you know what it is? We're always thinking about me first. My wants, my needs, my desires, my ambitions. You will live only for the physical, and the spiritual will be avoided when everything you have is viewed as something you deserve to work for. Believer, you and I think more carnally than we ought to admit sometimes. We want to admit sometimes. Oh, we'll do the cliche, you know, God's blessed me and all that. But truly, when you come to think of it, how many times have you actually thanked him for it? It's easy to say the stuff that's, you know, the Christian statements and phrases to everybody else. But in your private time with God, how often do you thank him for everything? And I mean genuinely thank him. Our attitude should be like the Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Believer, you and I should strive to work the hardest we can for the kingdom of God. Believers should be the hardest workers because he's worth it. Do we just simply check out because it's all God? Do I just like let go and let God? I don't even do anything. God's going to do it all. No. What Paul's saying is I worked harder. But it wasn't really me. It was the grace of God that was working. It should look crazy to others that we really want to do more for God. I don't think enough Christians look crazy enough to be sold out for the kingdom. I think the ones that truly are sold out look nuts to everybody else. Like, really? You really have that much time to give God and serving this and this way? How could you do that? I have no time like that. No, you have the same 24 hours in the day. You and I choose what we want to prioritize every single week. We have a schedule. We put it all together, say, this is what matters. Okay, Sunday morning, I'll give you that, God. Everything else, we'll see. Bottom line, God should be a part of every day of our lives. If you're only giving him Sundays and you think that's what God expects, you don't know the God of the Bible. You should work so hard knowing that God expects that from you, knowing that it all depends on him. You see, the truth is, church, Jacob was a deceitful man. We're deceitful people. We don't deserve God's grace. Jacob was not the epitome of a wonderful saint of God that God was going to give blessings to. He lied to his dad. If we were in that narrative, if we put ourselves in God's shoes, we would have been like, there's no way that's right. Jacob doesn't deserve it. And you're absolutely right, he doesn't. That's exactly why grace is necessary. Because we don't deserve it. And the moment that you and I as believers believe we deserve it, we've lost sight of grace. We've lost sight of sovereign grace. Back in Genesis 27, 40, we also see another difference in that Esau's blessing included living by his own means. Yet always coming up short when it came to his brother. Verse 40 in Genesis 27. By your sword you shall live, 
and you shall serve your brother. And it shall come to pass when you become restless that you shall break his yoke from your neck. Now compare that to Jacob's blessing. Verse 29. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be master over your brethren. Let your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be those who bless you. What a contrast. One of the brothers has to live with his own effort in this life while the other has God's divine favor in his life. For the full, clear exposition of the blessings of both Jacob and Esau, we go back to Malachi chapter 1. We want to look at the background of all of this text. Malachi chapter 1, we're starting in verse 2 through 5. It says, I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord. Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Even though Edom has said, we have been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness. And the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. Your eyes shall see. And you shall say. The Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. Essentially, Esau's blessing became his curse. As happens so often to so many, the very things that God blesses them with become a curse in their life. Because they become idols in their life. Parents, you absolutely should love your kids as God calls you to. But they sure make a poor replacement for God. Men, you should work hard to make sure you earn enough money. But money is not the main pursuit. Ladies, you should want to raise children. But don't neglect other things that God calls you to. You see, the truth is, every single one of us has so many things that God gives us, and unfortunately what happens is, we take many times the blessing instead of the giver. We're, give me more, God. You, not so much. Give me more. Anything but you, I want. Anything you can provide me, we're like spoiled children wanting from Father. And the truth we all need to realize is that God is the ultimate blessing. Jesus was the blessing promised to Abraham that is a blessing to us. Esau's attempt to gain status apart from God only brought about his destruction. And believer, God does this with the nation of Israel as well but he restores them later. And God will do that to those that disregard what his word says. 
the restoration of Israel was a long process. It was not instantaneous. You see, so many of us, we think that God will restore things in our lives as soon as we just say, Lord, forgive me, I messed up. If you've read your Bible, you know that that's not how it works. There may be forgiveness instant. If we confess, he's faithful and just to forgive us. That's a truth we can all bank on. Here's what the text doesn't say. And now you're absolved of all consequences. That's not what the text says. God deals this way with those that attempt to make a name for themselves apart from him. What he says here is true. They may build, but I will throw down. The key in all of this, by the way, church, is found in verse 5. Your eyes shall see, and you shall say, the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. When Israel's asking God, how have you loved us? I don't feel the love right now. God is saying, let me explain. You didn't deserve this, and I showed my love on you. But at the end, I need you to realize one thing. I will be the one magnified, not you. It's not about Israel. It's not even about us. It's about him. And yes, Israel is God's chosen people. We can't take that away because that's his stamp of approval. But it's ultimately about him. It will always be about him. Israel was to reflect his glory. Guess what, church? What are you supposed to do? Reflect his glory. I hate to break it to you. If you've been in the church for many years and the focus of the message has always been you, it's not. The Bible's focus from beginning to end is God and his glory and his plan. All of creation, all of the redemption of sinful man, the calling of a nation was all designed to point back to God. When you pray before your children, it's designed to point back to God. Not to show your religiosity to anybody. You should be an example because you want him to be known. Believer, anything short of giving him full credit is taking glory for ourselves. If you're not a child of God, you're watching this. Your efforts, as successful as they may seem, to those around you, will come to naught under the almighty hand of God. God is absolutely sovereign over all of his creation. And one day we will stand in full acknowledgement of this fact. God commands all men everywhere to repent, to turn from their sin and to trust in the finished work of Christ. If you're a believer, you've turned from sin to Christ. The question is, are you doing that right now? Or have you turned your back on Christ and gone back to sin? Maybe you've turned back to sin as a comfort. I want you to know that that displeases him. God's got something much better than sin ever could offer to you and me. 
Listen to what David says. He reminds us of this. Psalm 1611. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Believer, when you and I drink deeply of that truth, that's when we know God the way we ought to. When we go about our week with everything about me, and then we're like, God, I'll give you a little bit of time today. I don't know if I have it, but I'll give you some time. We don't see him that way. John Piper says, the key to Christian living is a thirst and hunger for God. And one of the main reasons people do not understand or experience the sovereignty of grace and the way it works through the awakening of sovereign joy is that their hunger and thirst for God is too small. Do you want to know why certain Christians look weird to you and me? Because they've drank this more deeply than you and I have. When someone's sold out for God, it looks crazy to other believers that don't care. Believer, I want to ask, as we close, what's your relationship with God? We obviously see in this text in Malachi that God has a specific thing he wants to tell the people of Judah. Do you view God merely as a friend who's there to just listen to all your problems? Because that's a lot of Christians today. I mean, you wouldn't know anything different than that. Well, God is just going to, you know, just tell God. He knows. Um, he does. He's also sovereign. He also reigns. He is a father to the fatherless and defender of widows. But he's also king. And our casual approach is very much the wrong way many times. Do you view him as Lord, Master, Sovereign, believer? If we truly believe that God is sovereign, what would change if we were to see Jesus face to face this week? What would happen if you knew you had to meet with Jesus face to face this week? What would change in your schedule? Would you make the excuses you made last week? Would you approach him as casually as you do in prayer? Or would your prayer life get a little better? Would you read God's word with more intention? Would you treat his sons and daughters the way you have? Would you recognize that the people of Israel have a special place in God's heart and it's only his mercy that brought you near to Christ due to the hardness of their heart? Maybe you and I have only wanted a better life. So God to you is simply something you want to make you feel better. He's more than that. If you and I diminish him to just a sentimental feeling, we've missed what scripture teaches. The joy that he gives you and me is an everlasting joy. It's not a happiness that's very faded and here and gone. See God the way he is in his word. A triune God existing as the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. God who commands light to shine from darkness. God who came in human flesh to give us redemption. 
God who still works in our hearts, breaking the heart of stone, raising the dead to life. Believer, believe God when he says he's sovereign when you pray for other people. In closing, A.W. Tozer says this, The sovereign God wants to be loved for himself and honored for himself. That is only part of what he wants. The other part is that he wants us to know that when when we have him, we have everything. We have all the rest.